You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us on our continuing mission to explore intersectional diversity in infinite combinations. My name is Kennedy, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Sarah. Hello. And our special guest, Jesse Gender. Hi. Jesse, introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about your history with Star Trek. Uh, I've never heard of Star Trek. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> imposter! <laughs> I'm from the mirror universe, I swear. No. Uh, yeah, uh, so I am a YouTuber. I have a channel called Jesse Gender, weirdly enough. And uh, I basically try and use Star Trek and other geek and pop culture references to sort of talk about political, social, and LGBTQ issues because I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. Um, and, and just try and connect geek culture with, like, what we can learn about how to build a better humanity and, and build the Star Trek future. So yeah, that's that's the short version, I guess. <laughs> Good enough for me. We've gathered here today to talk about Star Trek Discovery's third season. Dearly beloved, we've gathered here today. <laughs> but before we get into that, I would love to uh, do just a little bit of housekeeping first. Our show is made possible by our patrons on Patreon. We've revamped our Patreon tiers for the new year, bringing in some new rewards. So if you've ever thought about checking out our Patreon, please do so now. We really appreciate the support. You can find us at patreon.com slash women at warp. This episode is brought to you by Text Expander. More from them a little later. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, we're regularly curating new designs for our Tee Public store. Find t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, masks, and more at tpublic.com slash stores slash Women at Warp. All of these links, of course, are also on our website at womenatwarp.com. So, now that that's out the way... Uh, let's get down to business to defeat Osira. Is that <laughs> yes? Because she needed to go. I couldn't. Mm. Before we get into that, holy cats, disco season three. What a ride! Am I right? Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. We kind of had no idea what to expect going into it because all we knew was they're in the far future, and that was it. That's it. That's it. And quite frankly, the fact that we had no point of reference for what to expect this season has been its shining jewel amongst all of the jewels in, in the crown and all of the petals that go in this crown as well for Discovery. Now, it's not to say it's not without some some weaknesses, some weak points, but we'll get into that in, in just a little bit. I try to surmise <laughs> each episode like in a really brief way for all of us if we had any points about anything to jump out please feel free if i miss anything um to to go in please if and let me know if i'm going a little too ham because this was my jam this season go full ham i i am here for it (laughs) i'm I'm trying to keep this in a reasonable amount of time so (laughs) without further ado they 
literally fling themselves into a rip of space and time. Michael headfirst. No ship. No shuttlecraft. Just pretty much a little piece of fabric that she built on the way (laughs) to the launch pad. (laughs) Flings herself into the future, into a skirmish, and lands face first on a new planet. Like, if that ain't boldly going, I don't know what is, quite frankly. I, I truly don't. The meeting between her and Book and the world building in that episode really set the tone for what we could expect going forward. Yeah, I mean, like, that I think was probably Discovery's biggest strength this season was just, like, as you said, like, we could boldly go and do something new because previous seasons of modern Trek, even going on back all the way to the Enterprise, was, like, trying to deal with, like, what was basically wrestling with eras of Star Trek that we had already known. And so I was like super excited when Burnham like landed on that planet and she just screams that there's life in the, in the universe and like, Oh yes, we get to discover all that stuff again. And I was just so, so pumped for it. And I loved the setting. They were in Iceland, right? Mm-hmm. It was gorgeous. I mean, desolate, but gorgeous. Yeah. Definitely had me fooled that they didn't find some rock on another planet somewhere, <laughs> set up shop, <laughs> set up an atmosphere in a bubble, I guess. Who knows? It's definitely a big change from like the sixties and the nineties when it was all soundstage. Right. Or even, you know, Joshua Tree, California. Yeah. <laughs> that one cave that like every person in Star Trek just decided to hang out, hang out in. <laughs> and, and have life altering moments. in. yeah, totally. <laughs> yep. Um, I would venture to say Michael Burnham getting drugged was the stripping away of her Vulcan upbringing. That hadn't occurred to me, but you've got a point. Because ever since then, even when she sobered up, right, even when the effects of the drug wore off, she was completely different. She's still a brilliant scientist, right? So the intelligent part, obviously, is still there. But as far as that regulated control over her emotional reactions to things, boom, completely out the window. <laughs> like, gone. Yeah, I definitely agree. It feels like, I mean, that was like the start of her journey this season, which really felt like the the show kind of wrestling with some of the decisions that they made with her character in the past few seasons. And I have many opinions on how well I think they, they did that sort of <laughs> criticism of her character. And, but from this moment in this episode, it really felt like they were trying to like loosen her up and, and open her up in, in a way that she hadn't been before. And I think that was, I think within this episode, within the premiere, I thought that that was a really kind of fun way to do that to try and break her out of her shell because not only is she in a world where that's totally new to her she's kind of like had to face emotions that she's never had to feel before too which i thought was a, a good move for her character at least in this episode yeah absolutely um shout out to david ajala to introducing us to a character like cleveland booker david ajala is amazing and i love him <laughs> aka space bay Yes. I, any scene any scene where he was shirtless, I was very distracted. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just he when you talk about presence, like oh, yeah. wow. 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 It's it's intense. And I mean that not just with his shirtless, like he has like he is brings such energy and like Shakespearean gravitas and yet like that roguishness to everything. It was wonderful. Yeah. And yet he has such a soft side. It's Jamush. He likes cats. What what? <laughs> What? A gun-toting special ops operative who loves cats? Come on. Only the best base for Michael Burnham. That's all I'm going to say. 
and please correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the, also the episode where we meet Adita Sayil, correct? Because he brings her to him at the end. You mean the guy we met and we all cried immediately? Uh, instantly. Everybody's space uncle. Space uncle, who you didn't know you needed. Oh my god, there's my space uncle. I didn't, <laughs> didn't realize... <laughs> I missed you so. I know when he when he comes. This is skipping ahead, but when he comes back at the end of the season, I'm like, oh, you're so he's back. I know. I, know. I was I like almost wish we got to see more of him throughout the season because he was just a sweetheart. Fingers crossed for season four. Yes, right. I love the fact that they skipped him straight to lieutenant too. Mm-hmm. No, no Harry Kim treatment for the, for you, my friend. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna be the clock watcher on this episode. We got to move forward to episode two, Far From Home. Good. Excellent. Far from home. Disco makes it. Also flinging themselves into a rip of time and space. Lands in these worst conditions ever. Saru's a hell of a captain. I don't care what anybody says. Fight me. <laughs> Tilly's amazing as well. Giorgio came through in the clutch. <laughs> which, you know, we needed. We needed that and set the tone for what her role would be for the rest of the season. Detmer is not okay at this point. She's really, she's just not. I've never felt so stressed about ship damage in my life. <laughs> Chauvinism makes it to the 32nd search century, um, and then Michael to the rescue. Yeah, when you when you touched upon Detmer there, like the thing I loved about this episode, and, and really just constantly throughout the season, was how much that the kind of I, I want to call them the lower decks crew, but they're they're kind of the upper decks crew in a weird way. Like how much of like the the secondary characters on the show got so much like warmth and characterization. Um, like from Detmer or Owo, and by the way, Detmer and Owo are totally a thing. You cannot convince me otherwise. <laughs> and like Bryce and Linus and all of them, it was just they they didn't necessarily outside of Detmer, they didn't get like a huge character arc. Um, and Owo at the end of the season as well. Uh, but they they managed to just sprinkle in so many small moments with all of these characters, where it's like, oh, I felt like they had a life and personality outside of what we just saw on screen, and I thought that that was really just well done by the show. I think so as well. And I liked that um, she wasn't okay for several episodes. Uh-huh. Like it, they didn't just mm-hmm. like fix her in one because that's not how it works. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love, I mean, that's just like a theme of the season, right? Which was trauma and, and PTSD, like the galaxies suffered trauma from the burn. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, you know, Detmer's had PTSD and trauma from the burn. The whole crew is feeling that because they've been thrown out of, of whack with, with being in the future as we saw in a couple episodes coming up. Like I, I just, I really loved that starting from this very episode, we started to see discovery do something that Trek has not really had a good, done a good job with, which was just dealing with PTSD and trauma. in, I think a fairly mature and understanding way. And and sometimes it wrapped up a bit too quickly, but I think overall just, just star Trek tackling that theme I thought was wonderful. Yeah, I agree because at the end of the day, you know, all of these crews, all these ships are going into situations that, Sometimes they don't have any precedent for, and sometimes counselors, ship's counselors, if there even is one in the crew manifest, are inequipped mm-hmm. to deal with it. So Disco's ex- extremely lucky to not only have um, Colbert on board as, a, as an MD, but also if he has, um, you know, therapeutic and counseling skills, as he clearly does, that's a definite win as well. So glad they didn't stretch out them reuniting with michael over the arc of this season i was worried that that was going to be a thing so the fact that she comes back in season three or season three in episode three to save the world (laughs) aka disco (laughs) made me really really happy michael's braids were an 
earth-shattering thing for me and many other Black women, just seeing our hair represented in such a quote-unquote controversial protective style, in the future no less, is a thing that I don't even think there's words for. Like, it's not, it surpasses pride, it surpasses anything else, any other term I can think of, but it was just monumental, and I'm so glad that they that they did it. I think, like, this whole season, one of the things that struck me too, kind of jumping off of that, is like, I just loved how, like, black, brown, queer, and, like, so many other identities Discovery is. It just so it just really struck me throughout the season. I'm like, dang, there are so many identities and different backgrounds and different, like, types of people in this show. It just And, and like, all being portrayed authentically, I think is it, I was just yeah. so really, really happy with that. And I appreciated that there were two black women with braids on the bridge. That's right. That's right. Like there isn't just one. And they're completely different. Technically, Oos is a crochet <laughs> set. It's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. No, it's fine. But it's still the, the fact that, you know, they had quote unquote ethnic hairstyles in a very professional setting, in a very scientific, adventurous setting that, you know, is, is so impactful. Um, you're absolutely right about that, Sarah. And even to further that point, when they finally get to Earth, they're like, hell yeah, we're home. And the first her face they see is a black woman. So I'm like, oh, so we're just, we're just, oh, we're just out here now. Okay, I'm with it. She is not with their shit. And it, it shifts the tonality of the season itself to find that the galaxy and human beings are not as receptive and welcoming and open to the ideal of a federation or a starfleet anymore so it shows the other obstacle that this crew has to deal with can i jump in and just say one of my favorite moments this whole season was in people of earth when Giorgio goes full scooby-doo and unmasks the monster and it's old man jenkins yes <laughs> oh my god yeah yeah that is so <laughs> so true i also loved that moment just because uh it, it, it just goes to like why i was just like really like loving the season especially towards the top of the season because i loved moments like that where it was like the whole point of that was you think it's this crazy weird alien that's underneath this 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 helmet and it turns out that it's just another guy it's another human showing that like is <laughs> as, as uh cliche as it is to say is like we're not so different to you and i when we get past all of our differences and anger and hatred at each other that there there's a lot of commonality underneath and i thought that that was a really beautifully portrayed in that moment just using that sort of like unmasking scooby-doo moment yeah haters will say it's heavy-handed but that's star trek star trek is heavy-handed it beats you over the head with its message and every if that's not what star trek is i don't know what is (laughs) (laughs) right i i concur but through some good old-fashioned starfleet diplomacy they fix that rift and we meet adira teen genius Mm. which brings us to episode four forget me not aka the troll episode everybody's been asking for Although, you know, a couple years too late, which was really cool to see what that experience would be for a Trill joining. Uh, it's interesting to see Trill prejudice pop up. That was, you know, a little, oh, okay, I guess this kind of shit is transcendent. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and we get to see, you know, what happened to poor Grey, poor Senna, and the rest of the, the Talls. Uh, almost. We don't really get into the rest of the lineage, but those two particularly was, was rough. And in the meantime, while they're dealing with that on the ship, on the surface, rather, on Trill, Q is saving the mental health of, of the crew. We get an awkward family dinner. <laughs> we get 
all of the things. Um, this was a big, big feely episode. And Giorgio walking off with the wine. Yep. Uh, that was definitely a mood for 2020 in general, to be fair. <laughs> uh, but I, I got to say this episode, I, I did a whole video on this episode and like how much I adored this one. Um, you know, bringing up Adira, you know, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and I'm trans and non-binary as well. And it's, it was just so amazing to see that character uh appear in that show and and gray as well um being another you know member of the lgbtq community and i just loved that this show finally got gave me a chance to see my community and my identity in the show and not just as like though like here's the one trans you know but multiple trans characters at the same time getting to exist in in their own way was wonderful and this episode uh, forget me not i thought just did a really beautiful job of evoking uh what we've all known the trill were which was a transgender metaphor and and using the trill as this, this wonderful metaphor for being trans like the scene where gray is getting his symbiote just reads so much like a gender confirmation surgery it was just it was it was so beautifully done and yet it by doing it in that way I think allowed the show to like actually talk about trans issues without it being trans issues in, in true Star Trek way, but still allowing trans people to be involved in that narrative instead of just being ancillary to it or not even involved at all. I just, I think they just wove a very complex pattern with that. And there, there are some issues there here and there, like the barrier gaze of gray right off the top was rough. Yeah. I just, Oh, that, that hurt. Thankfully, it gets, does stick around at least, so that's good. And I'm really glad that later on they clarified Adira's pronouns, because knowing that the actor Blue Del Barrio uses gender-neutral pronouns, and they, at least the characters, had gendered Adira bursting out the gate, made me cringe. So those two parts of that, mm-hmm. plus the fact that we already had the, the season where, you know, we killed Cobra off but didn't, like, I can't my heart. I really need y'all to not... <laughs> continue to do this to me um but yeah i'm glad that they were able to to really cohesively draw parallels there so that folks can at least get some inkling of of understanding so that you know we can get past the bullshit and coexist peacefully i have i have a mild actual hot hot take on the pronouns of adira throughout the season there's there's something to be said for i wish in the Star Trek future, we didn't even have to deal with that, that we wouldn't assume someone's gender and we wouldn't assume someone's pronouns we would always ask. But that being said, I actually do appreciate that the show showed those moments because mm-hmm. we need to see that today. And Star Trek, if anything, is meant to show us today what we need to see. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it would have been nice to sort of have moved past that by that point. But I, I understand the place the writers were, were kind of put in with that. And the other hot take, too, is I kind of like to a degree that because Adira was using she, her pronouns at the beginning of the season that so many in the Trek community were made a little bit uncomfortable about that as, as a trans person, it was actually kind of nice to see a moment where so many people in the Trek community had to learn what that felt like and feel that uncomfortability and, and sort of ask questions about it. Like I had so many people asking me questions about pronouns and pronoun usage and what, are they supposed to do at this point? And and 
I, I just thought it was like a really good learning opportunity. And I'm always for making people feel a little bit uncomfortable if it means them learning in the end. And I, so I, I actually kind of appreciated that. I had read that the reason they were using she, her pronouns in the beginning was that Blue hadn't come out to their parents yet. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really cool that the show respected that and was like, we're going to go with what you are comfortable with. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. So I'm less annoyed now. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we find out the movie night is better than family dinner. Um, <laughs> but I was a little alarmed at how sentient the sphere data was. Call me, you know, an AI extremist, but I was a little alarmed at first. Fortunately, we find out later on that I, everything was okay, but I was still like, hey. I, don't, I thought it was suspicious. They're like, okay, our ship is sentient now. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The, the dismissal of that was, a, especially Bissaru, is a low-key, like, kind of weird. I do I do hope that they, they bring uh, the sphere sentience, uh, spirit data sentience back in at the end of the season and so maybe are building towards uh, Calypso, the short trek from, like, uh, like, a couple years ago. I'm honestly hoping that, like, Discovery manages to take that character and actually do something good and, like, actually make the AI helpful and and like part of the crew and part of the team because i feel like there's been like this low-key like bias against ai throughout all of star trek that it's it's the show is pushed against we've even seen it in picard that the show kind of pushes against like discrimination of ai like with control last season on discovery i don't know i just i would like to see ai be treated more maturely than they're out to kill us all which i i think discovery is kind of leaning that way which i kind of like you know what jesse now that you're talking about it it made me think of andromeda Mm. where they ultimately gave the ship's computer an avatar it would be within roddenberry canon to do something like that technically um so now that you're you're talking about it that way uh, maybe maybe i might be open to a a sphere data avatar maybe i i will work on my you know deconditioning process i promise but speaking on change, holy cats die trying, a.k.a. the homecoming, a.k.a. the ship flex, a.k.a. did we need David Cronenberg in Star Trek? Apparently we did, because here we are. And Space Daddy, Admiral Vance. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> oh, mm, oh, just everything about that homecoming. First we get the, the geeky stuff out the way. Oh my god, all these ships. The USS Nog, Voyager J. And then we get back to reality, where Vance is like, I don't know you, I don't know where you come from, your ship is nice, but it's mine now, and as soon as I determine whether or not you're cool or not, we can go forward, but until then, you're going to cool your jets. But Michael's like, wait, we can help. He said, didn't I just get finished telling you, (laughs) I don't know who you are, where you come from? And she's like, but, oh, oh, right. Vance was so important, because Michael had continuously and proceeded to break rules. She just was not obeying orders in any capacity and vance wasn't about that life so she needed somebody whom whose approval she was after um whose respect she was after and and uh whose camaraderie she was after to check her a couple times because obviously saru checking her on her on her bs wasn't working Giorgio tried to check her that didn't work so I feel like that final immovable force, as Giorgio put it, was necessary for Michael and her development. Yeah, I, I like that because it, it felt like the, the writers kind of doing a critique of some of the criticisms of Michael Burnham because like the main problem that I feel like good faith criticizers of Michael Burnham had 
because there are definitely some bad faith criticizers of her. But I feel like one of the main problems was like she's the main character of the show. And so she is sort of instigating a lot of the plot stuff. But because she's not the captain, it kind of is like, who, wh- wh- why are you making these decisions? And so I liked that the show was sort of like acknowledging that and being like, yeah, Michael Burnham is a bit impulsive and she she kind of just does what she wants a lot of the time, which was a problem of the show before because they just they kind of wanted to have a character who was not the captain be the main character, which feels and reads a little bit awkwardly when you have them be so plot instigating. And so I like that the show is sort of like criticizing that and actually like bringing down the hand, hammer of Admiral Vance on her uh, every so often, which was kind of nice. Right. And she ended up being right, as she usually does. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, it was it was kind of like, I feel like it was necessary for her and, and for the audience to see that kind of growth. I was weird to say goodbye to Nan abruptly like that, but I guess, okay, bye, girl. <laughs> Discovery's like, here, here's some character development. Now leave the show forever. <laughs> bye, girl, bye, girl. <laughs> uh, which brings us to Scavengers. Talk about Michael not following orders. I'm glad she didn't, but geez, girl, this is this is a lot. I don't know. If I'd be okay with you as a, as a first officer after this one, I'd be either be super impressed or super, super weary. Probably a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the Orions suck. <laughs> Tendi will take issue with you on that. <laughs> Tendi is dead and gone by the time we meet these Orions. Okay? Unless Tendi is caught up in some time-space continuum, at which point, you know, I will personally apologize to her in the generalization, but I'm pretty sure... Tendi didn't have anything to do with these enslavers, these 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 tyrants, these despots, these criminals, these traffickers of people. No, Orion suck. <laughs> we need to get her a time crystal or something so she can jump to the future and let these people know. Let your people know, Tendi, because I'm mad at them. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I like this sort of seeding of the Emerald Chain throughout the season that we like sort of got them in the background until they finally became like a main plot thread when Osira came in. So I, I liked episodes like this where it just showed like how widespread their their villainy and just general awfulness um, was throughout the ga- uh, galaxy. Yeah. I, in fact, I almost wish we had spent a little more time on the Emerald Chain mm-hmm. because I feel like we got dumped with a lot of stuff at the end. I feel like it was cool. You know what I mean? I don't I don't. I I enjoyed what was dumped on us towards the end of the season, but I feel like this was a clear and obvious threat early on that they, you know, did not explore until the end there, which uh, I don't know how I feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had gotten a little bit more of Emerald, the Emerald Chain, a little less of being told how important the burn was. I think it's probably is probably the distinction I make because I don't mind where the burn goes, as we'll talk about, and I'm sure in a little bit. But I just there's so many scenes of like this middle part of the season, which is like, hey, the burn's really important. We should be paying attention to the burn. Let's figure out what's going on with the burn. Hey, do you have I talked about the burn yet? Yeah, I would have rathered a little less of that and more like building out the Emerald Chain um, as as a as a threat because Osiris turned out to be pretty interesting later on Mm, we can talk about it uh this episode triggered me just a little bit because i I have a hard time looking at black men being enslaved Mm -hmm. even if it is a space dot of a shackle i don't like it (laughs) really people of color in general being enslaved but particularly not black men particularly not david ajala like you want to fight let's fight but the fact that michael rescued him and found that black box ended up being super super important 
And we got Rin. Yes, we did get Rin. Played by the wonderful Noah. I love Noah ever. Batch Catch. He's a wonderful human. He's living the Trekkie dream. But it was also cool to see Stamets and Culver adopt Adira officially. And I love the fact that it came from a place of respect and not pity. You know what I mean? They didn't take them in because they felt bad for them. They took them in because they were like, this kid is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that so much because number one, Stamets and Culber are just adorable like parents. They are super sweet. And I also just liked that it was like a queer chosen family. Like we actually got to see queer people forming a family together, which is just so much a part of the queer experience of like just queer people finding each other and, and building, building a family together. It was just so wonderful to see. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about like just how much I love how queer willing to like showcase different identities this show is and not just be like, oh, yeah, we have we have our trans character. We have our gay characters like, no, we're going to like actually showcase what these these groups are and showcase them authentically within themselves yes within the star trek world but also just show like what makes these identities unique and special is part of this future not just background pieces of it it's it's an actual just taking wholesale part of star trek that family unit that they made just warms my heart so much and i love that they don't do things in one episode and be like, now here's our, our LGBTQ space family episode. And then we're going to go back to ignoring them. They're here. They're a part of it. Get used to it. Right. The only part of that found family that ended up being ignored for the better part of the season was auntie jet Reno, but (laughs) you know, whatever. I'm pretty sure auntie ain't got time for your games. Anyway, family. Ew. Let me go save. Let me go fix something. Can we talk about Auntie for a second, though? Because, like, Tignataro was in, like, three episodes or something this season, and she stole every single scene she was in. Every single one. Like, ate everybody up. Those three episodes were Tignataro and the cast of Star Trek Discovery. Real shit. During the interrogation scenes when they debrief. <laughs> I need a snack. What I, what I love about her so much, too, is that when you listen to, uh, they did an interview with Tignatara on the official Star Trek podcast, and she, she talks about how, like, she has no idea what she's doing or saying when she's on set. <laughs> I think it's just so funny. She's like, I say all these science words, and I have literally no idea, and I can't act, and everyone on set is just sort of like, yeah, you can do it. We believe in you. And she's like, I have no idea what's happening. And so it's just so funny that she's she just steals every single scene. <laughs> Speaking of found families, we're going to move into Unification 3, the episode I didn't know I needed. I am admittedly not, you know, the biggest Vulcan aficionado, and those who know me know that I'm getting over my Romulan prejudices. So I wasn't particularly looking for a Unification episode. And I feel like this was a really cool way to do it and call Michael out on the rest of her bullshit. I'm always happy to see Michael's mother, Dr. Mother Burnham, Dr. Mother Sister Burnham. <laughs> Since she's in the co-op a lot. Uh, seeing her call Michael out on her BS and be supportive in that super harsh scientist way was jarring. Even though Michael didn't grow up with her as her mother, it explains a whole bunch about the way Michael is as a person, especially now that we've stripped her of all her you know, Vulcan programming. It was cool to see that the Kuatmala made it to the 32nd century, especially them be after them being introduced in season one of Picard. And, uh, you know, she got demoted. 
which was her fault, you know? Also, I'm a sucker for for trial episodes of shows. Like anytime there's like a sci-fi trial, I'm like, I am here for it. Just let me let me be here for it. I'm always here for more bureaucracy in Star Trek. And like, I don't know why. I just love like seeing legal battles and, and like trade negotiations and stuff. I don't know why I'm always here for it. All that stuff is super important. That's what we call political science, which is still a science, which is still what Star Trek is about. So I don't understand why people aren't about that jam anyway. And I'll tell you what, this scene also kind of challenged me on my prejudices as well. When they had the torches and shit going, I said, what the hell is this? What, where are we? Are we, are we in somebody's cave? Get over yourselves. But I was like, you know what? This is their cultural um, observation of this right be respectful. And that's the whole freaking point of Star Trek. Even if you don't understand it, if you don't agree with it, you still are obligated to respect that person's sovereignty. Um, and to your point with the whole court scene thing, when Michael realized that she didn't really have a claim to what she was trying to say and that she wasn't being honest with herself or her crew, and pretty much, you know, gave up when she turned and walked out and that whole crew was on its feet instantly. I said, yes, you stand up for her because even though she's wrong, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, and I also, the other thing too about this this episode that I really, really loved was that it not only unified and showed us like the, the sequel to unification that we always wanted and the unification of the Vulcans and Romulans that was sort of like Spock's dream. But in a weird way, it felt like this episode unified so many disparate elements of, of Star Trek. Like There were so many references to every piece of Star Trek in this episode. Like we got Spock mm-hmm. in the original series, but also unification from his dream in, in Next Generation. We got the Quat Malat, which came from Star Trek Picard. All those little pieces throughout this episode just made it feel like, oh, this is unifying all of Star Trek. This is making Star Trek this beautiful tapestry that's just all coming together and just showing how when a franchise like this that's been going on for so long works on all cylinders and just can pull together so many disparate threads of itself can make something really, really beautiful um, that I just, I adored. So this the unification title was not just the unification of Vulcan and Romulans. It felt like a unification of Star Trek. And I just loved that. It is Alex Kurtzman building his Star Trek universe. Yeah. Next, yeah. So one thing that really bothered me about this episode, though, was um, I thought it was really on the nose that they had the three people in the trial. I forget what they're called. um, But the Romulan thinks like Romulans and the Vulcan thinks like Vulcans and the person who is half and half thinks half and half. And as a mixed race person, as a biracial person, Mm. that's not how it works. I thought that was really on the nose and very oversimplified. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely true. I I was taking those three and their polarizing point, well, at least the two of them had the polarizing point of view and the one in the middle. I took them as a representation of how fragile a unification process can be, right? Because these three are, you know, adults having grown up on Navarre, which means it had been established for at least as long as they had lived, perhaps several generations before them. So the concept of Vulcans and Romulans living side to side Um, wasn't foreign to them as individuals. But the fact that they were still, at least the Romulan guy was still so ready to be like, see, this is the shit I'm talking about with y'all, was was like, wow, bro, chill. Like, you were doing so well. And I feel like it's indicative of a lot of conversations that people have nowadays from polarizing points of view, from other sides of the aisle, um, and how difficult it is to let go of prejudices and conditioning. 
It was it, you know, heavy handed. Sure. Absolutely. But I feel like, like Jesse was saying, this is some, like Trek's always been heavy handed and it has to be for the folks who refuse to, to see it for what it is. This is like constant, the constant tension within Star Trek is this like push and pull between representing uh, identities authentically and minorities authentically, which is like an express goal of Star Trek, but also it's um, desire to be science fiction and trying to tell these stories through metaphor um, and through alien metaphor. And so sometimes when Star Trek tries to tell an alien metaphor and try to tell something meaningful about today, that sometimes is because of the way the metaphor works, it can have unintended consequences and are unintended influences that we can't dismiss the writers. We, we can, we can understand that that wasn't the intention while not sort of like letting Trek loose on, on that, which is like a problem that we saw with like a, a lot of like LGBTQ representation throughout all of Star Trek in, in, in alien metaphor. Mm-hmm. But to Sarah's point, like I, I didn't even think about that, about how the um, unintended like implications of having like mixed race identity uh, be represented in this way could be oversimplified, oversimplified. Yeah. Especially on a show like Star Trek, which has done really well to show uh, people of multiple heritages wrestling with that and really well going all the way back to Spock. Yeah. That's another good point. Book needs help again in the sanctuary. I really just feel like if you just lived here, bro, you wouldn't run into this. Like you need to just move in. So I can keep an eye on you, obviously. Quajon's being threatened by the Emerald Chain because Osiris sucks. And apparently the Orions can't help but be oppressive jerks. Um, We must protect Rin at all costs, not only because he is baby, but also because he stood up to her. So why not? And we really get an opportunity to see how severe the Emerald Chain is going to be and how severe Osira really is. Which we could have gotten into more had we not had two episodes focusing on writing Giorgio off of the series. Get ahead of your productivity for the new year with the power of Text Expander. Text Expander removes the repetition from your work so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling, and message errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. Better than copy and paste, better than scripts and templates, Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. Take your time back in the new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. You can get 20% off your first year if you visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about it. Which brings us to Terra Firma parts one and two, or as I like to call them, Terra Phila. Oh, I liked them though. I love Mirror Universe episodes. They're so much fun. Gorgeous. Absolutely stunning to look at. And I love them as well, but I, I did not need two whole episodes because of all the things (laughs) that we ended up getting squished in at the end. Do I love seeing Hugh Colbert in Guy Liner? Absolutely. Do I love seeing Reese in Guy Liner? Absolutely. Do I love seeing Detmer and Owo in them skirts? Absolutely. But do I need to see a very clear plot? Hey, I need to redeem myself by saving my evil, wicked child. (laughs) (laughs) stretch on for for 40 to 50 minutes not necessarily one of the things that i this i i kind of agree with you like i 
we did not need to see this like drawn out over two episodes. I liked it. Like I thought it was a lot of fun and I thought there was some really beautiful things in there and like actually showing us Giorgio like being softened. But the thing that actually stuck out to me the most about these episodes um, is one that I didn't expect was that this might be outside of like the earlier episode far from home that we got. This is, I think the first episode that did not focus mainly on Michael Burnham. Um, and it actually focused in on another character. And it, it sort of made me like recognize that I I really love Michael Burnham. I think she is an absolutely wonderful character. But I, I do sort of miss from previous Star Trek uh, series the fact that we would get episodes focused on other characters. Because in this show, because everything centers on Michael Burnham, all the other character beats and moments do happen. I think we get some really wonderful character arcs, but they sort of happen in the periphery of Michael Burnham's story. And so I liked that this episode kind of stopped and focused in on another character for for a little bit um, and, and sort of like let us have their journey uh, for a little while. And it's something that I hope that future seasons of the show do in that, like, I still want Michael Burnham to be, you know, she's going to be captain, she's going to be in charge, and I want to see her, like, be the, like, central character because she is amazing. But I also like taking chances to be like, let's have a Tilly episode. Let's have a Saru episode. I think that would be kind of nice. And so that was, like, a surprising takeaway from this two-parter that I that I kind of was surprised by. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, this is nice to have sort of, like, a, a, a sort of side story to to the main stuff going on. And Tilly did get some great moments in, in these two episodes in a very different character than we're used to seeing her in. Mm-hmm. I feel like I would argue, but also to your point, if this was a season that had 20 some episodes, I feel like we'd be able to learn all the things about this kick-ass crew. Um, but the time frame, I think, prevents them from really getting into it in the way that we would love. Mm-hmm. But now that we know that Michael's fucking Michael, <laughs> <laughs> maybe season four will free up a little space to get into a couple more characters. We'll get to explore, like you said, Saru and even people like Sukal, which just, oof, you want to talk a level up. First of all, Tilly takes the con in a way that I, I would probably infuriate, I know, definitely infuriate Harry Kim. And some Kim is just crying in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> because not only does she get promoted to XO, but hey, guess what? Now I've got the con on an important away mission. Really cool to see all the different uh iterations of federation aliens on the, the away team um that bo- that beams into this radioactive hotspot of a nebula to find the source of the burn which ends up being a person um in fact it's bill Irwin as to call we see another kelpian who is 70 by the way sorry i just learned this the other day bill Irwin's 70 and he plays like a childlike character so well it was uh, sorry it just like blew my mind anyways but you're right, played with beautiful childlike wonder and innocence and apparently extremely volatile tantrums. Um, all the while, Osira and the chain are bearing down and when a last-ditch effort for a book to rescue Michael, Adira stows away and ends up ultimately saving the day again. Which brings us to There is a Tide. Um, Osira full-out takes Disco and infiltrates FHQ, a.k.a. Federation Headquarters. I want to give a shout-out to all the ships, because they were lighting Disco the fuck up before Vance decided to let them go. Like, it all might be cute with the retrofit and the upgrades and the magnetic nacelles and whatnot, but you all are not messing with this 32nd century tech. Like, you're just not. So to see them have to open fire on them, to see Kovic and Vance standing at the helm like that, just, mm, oh, mm, 
just 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 such good stuff. Um, and we see the bridge crew activate, aka special forces, aka bridge SWAT. Who knew all they needed was a couple phasers? Because this team, let me tell you, we get to meet Aurelio, who I have a controversial opinion about. I've sourced some folks in the disabled community. They have some interesting opinions about him. Um, But I'm curious to see what you two think about him first before I get into it. Well, first, I think it's wonderful to see Ken Mitchell again. It was nice that they found a place for him. He he got diagnosed with ALS um, and lost the ability to walk. So it was nice that they were able to bring him back. I definitely agree. And he's he's just wonderful. He's slowly becoming the Jeffrey Coombs of this era of Star Trek, which I love. (laughs) And I appreciate that he is the second character on the show to use a wheelchair. And both those characters have been played by people who are actually disabled. Mm-hmm. Yep, all that's true. So on the one hand, it's great because there's finally some visibility there for that community. But on the other hand, a friend of mine raised a point um, that the first time we get to see a character like this in the future, like their first futuristic rendition of a person in this community plays a villainous role. And I hadn't thought about it. From that perspective, I, like you all, was just excited to see the fact that they made a space for him. Um, but that criticism was something that I, I hadn't really considered. And I want it brings up the notion of is all representation good representation? And when is it appropriate to start drawing the line? Um, so, did, I mean, ultimately, Aurelio like redeems himself. So it's kind of moot. But they even raise the point that, like, why does he even need to go through that? Why is it to be a villain first? Why do we need to reform? And I'm like, oh, this is so true. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's 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 a constant problem. Uh, you know, I can't speak for the disabled community because I am, you know, I'm not part of that community. But as someone who's part of the queer community, I saw something, you know, you'd see something similar in throughout Star Trek history, even within Discovery. I mean, like the first, like uh, one of the first like bisexual characters. In fact, the only bisexual character that I'm aware of on Discovery is Giorgio, who, you know, is incredibly villainous, especially when we first meet her. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, uh, that's, that's really frustrating. And uh, to my knowledge, we don't have any overt bisexual characters other than her on this show. Um, And it's nice that they are redeeming her, as you say, but it is that sort of similar journey as as Aurelio kind of has here. where It's like start off evil and get redeemed. And that's my representation that I I get for for bisexuality. Um, And so I can I can definitely see that sort of tension there where it's like, you know, I I don't think it's, you know, clearly right or clearly wrong, um, but it's definitely not not ideal. I guess mm-hmm. is the best way to put it. It makes me think about, we were talking about She-Ra before we started recording, and it makes me think about Double Trouble, how I was so thrilled to see a non-binary character, but I was mm-hmm. instantly pissed off that they were villainous at first. Um, and also, like, theatrical, too, which I always, like, I always hate when transgender or non-binary characters are, like, someone who hides their identity right. behind things, re- regardless of if they're a hero or a villain. That, that trope is just frustrating that, like, trans people are somehow hiding their authentic selves. Right. And I imagine the solution to this is to cast more disabled actors in these roles mm. so it becomes normalized so we won't have to worry about it. Hex, yeah. That I 100% agree with. Um, the next scene, in the biggest scene, I think, of of this last arc of, of Disco Season 3 is the conversation between Vance and Osira. Best scenes in the entire season, my my opinion. Because she is indicative of 
every person, at least in my experience, that has done terrible things and makes it a ploy to be included in in something that, you know, disdains terrible things without trying to take responsibility for those terrible things in the process. Like, oh, I had to do these terrible things. So it's like, no, you could have you could have done better. And and I like that it's played against fans. This was the scene that like I did not know I needed this year so badly. But it was just it was so nice to see Vance stand up for what Starfleet means and say, like, look, this is an e- I could join with the Emerald Chain and it would be an easy way to bring back the glory of the Federation. But it would mean compromising what we stand for in the process and compromising what the Federation even means. And, you know, I I've, I've totally understood previous seasons of Discovery and Star Trek Picard for being very critical of the Federation. I mean, we live in a time today in the real world where like our trust in institutions is not is not great <laughs> for fairly obvious reasons so you know i understand why those shows took those routes to be very critical of the federation and i think that was the right tack for star trek to take but it also is nice to see in this this ep- episode in the scene of like someone saying like yeah we could gain power we could bring back the glory of the federation but it wouldn't be the federation that deserves to exist and i like vance being like no and you have a note i I won't take credit for this this is in your outline but you have a note here that says eat shit capitalist scum and i think that that's i love that that's basically what he said to her i love it essentially because she convinced him right he wasn't about letting the emerald train the emerald chain have anything to do with the federation but she appealed to him on a personal level she said, what about the people? Like, these people are, into, are participating in this way of life that just happens to conflict with yours. They're not at fault with this because this is how their society acts. So she convinced him to consider the people that were, were in, in, you know, enshackled for all intents and purposes by the chain and was even willing to accept them into this new federation that she proposed but you have to take accountability for your actions it can't be you in the figurehead and you gotta go to jail boo boo it was very satisfying to see her come in and be like look we're turning into good people now we're doing this and that and then when it came to actual self-sacrifice she's like nope conversation over i'm leaving yep yep it's it's just the veneer of trying to be a good person without actually putting in the work and i i I, uh, this these scenes i thought were like everything that i love about star trek just in it was it was personal it was uh felt very human and on a human level you know using human in a very general term but also felt incredibly political and incredibly targeted at stuff going on today as well and so i just these are so good i just i loved these scenes to death so important Osira is a space Karen and Vance is probably the only person who reads the terms and conditions. I'm going to be honest though. The conversation I liked better was Kovic and Giorgio. Oh yeah. That was also great too. Oh yeah. That one absolutely takes the cake for the whole season. Hands down, full stop. (laughs) This is definitely a second place jam for sure. So she storms off because she doesn't get away her way. She doesn't, she gets held accountable for her actions and takes it out on poor Rin. May he rest in peace. But it also, unfortunately, needed to happen like that in front of Aurelio specifically because he was in denial that his space Karen was a space Karen. And some people just need to be outed in that way. Yes, yeah, I liked that. But the thing that frustrated me is it doesn't go anywhere. Aurelio doesn't add much to the plot after that. And I was just like, oh, like, I I think that was like a smart move. Like, you make us care about Rin and then you sacrifice him so Aurelio can understand. But then Aurelio does nothing. And I'm like, no, my poor Rin died for nothing. 
he he actually does come up with the the you know hail mary play at the very end i get yeah i guess so i mean i just i don't know i just it felt like i wish he had had a more consequential chance to turn on osira because he does turn on her next episode but he kind of just gets choked out and it, it ultimately doesn't mean much but but michael made a choice here that ultimately benefited the person that is most pissed off about it in ejecting Samets before they were abducted, right? She gets rid of Samets to prevent Osiris from being able to jump and separating him from his family that's on this radioactive planet with Sukal. I think it was the best thing to do. Obviously not the easiest choice, but certainly the smartest. Um, And it comes back to, not necessarily bite her in the butt, but it does come back to haunt Michael a little later on. Um, Speaking of the away team, Vulcan Gray, oh my gosh, oh, oh yeah, the the overt, I see you, I accept you, I love you in that scene was just so very important, and I know the community was uh, thrilled to see it. Just that one shot of you know Space Dad Hugh hugging his space babies, mm-hmm. like I just broke down. That was going back to that like queer chosen family that I just love. And yeah, the the representation of being seen, I thought was wonderful too with that. And then I, I just, uh, it was just, Ian Alexander is just so vulnerable and emotive. Same with Blue Delbaria. Like both of them are just so vulnerable all the time. And I just, I think they are just like, they are silent MVPs of, of acting this season. Must protect the space babies. This brings us to the finale, That Hope Is You, part two. Osiris tries to leave with Disco, um, almost gets beat the hell up in the process. Uh, Navarra comes through in the clutch. <laughs> I, I kind of thought with that mayday that Michael sent out that we would get some type of backup, but I didn't think Navarra was going to come through like that. I said, let's go. <laughs> yeah. I wish we had gotten to see someone like the, like, like actually be present kind of like last season where like uh when saru's sister shows up and and laurel show up at the uh in the season finale of season two mm-hmm. like we got to see them and be present and i would have liked to see i'm sure there was like some scheduling conflict or something like that but i would like to see like michael's mom like kicking butt on uh on the bridge of a navari ship or something like that yeah that would be neat um the bridge crew blue berets which is a hard thing to say it's easy to type but it's not <laughs> Bridge crew Blue Berets organized to blow up the nacelle and drop out of warp. The biggest thing that aggravated me about this episode was the fact that we had to wait till the season finale to learn about Oosei-kun. Like, why did it take us this long to find out Homegirl was a champion freediver? Like, what? And also, don't scare me like that because you're <laughs> dumping all this info on the character. I'm thinking she's not going to make it. Yep. Yep. Anytime anytime Disco does some character development, they're like, oh no. Oh no. Are you going to die or leave the show forever? <laughs> oh, I was like, that's it. We're not going to. That's it. That's so rest in peace. Oh, oh, oh no. She makes it cool. Michael and Osiris fight in the data core. Interesting. I'm okay with it. I thought it was a little brutal of her to shove her into she tried to feed her to the computer i said whoa that's that's a lot even for you i didn't love it because it was just like unclear what was happening it's just one of those moments where like the the show doesn't like give us clear stakes for what's happening in the scene and i just was like uh, uh, why would you think that would work? Like she was able to bust out of that data core and I'm like, Oh, Oh, okay. I, it's like, I didn't have a clear understanding of like what that was going to do. 
And so I was like, it didn't feel as earned, which so like the action sequence was visually stunning, especially like apparently the inside of Discovery is just cavernous. You could like fly, a, you could fly a galaxy class starship to the inside of Discovery. But I, I thought it was visually interesting, but I just didn't get, understand the stakes of it all that much. Yeah. I mean, now that you mentioned the Turbolifts, we're going to look at Turbolifts completely differently now, aren't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they always come out with those like schematic books of Star Trek, like where it just shows the inner schematics of a ship i pity the person who has to make the schematics for the inside of discovery now <laughs> yeah book can apparently interface with the spore drive now which i was like oh that's convenient i'm not complaining because it ended up getting the rescue i mean the away team back it was nice to see a warp core actually be ejected and blown up yeah just book interfacing with the spore drive i I can understand why people would have a problem with it, because it was awfully convenient. I'm okay with the the convenience. I feel like this crew's been through enough. Something convenient was a, was a pleasant change. But I was like, hmm, uh, someone's going to beef with that. And they rescued the away team just in time. What I what, what burns my ass most about this episode is the fact that people are like, Disco doesn't have enough science. What? So Call is a 125-year-old dilithium-based Kelpian polypoid. But you, there's not enough science for you? I actually thought that their explanation for that worked really, really well. I just wish, um, I mean, this gets into the whole like burn storyline and my issues with the burn storyline is that I, I didn't mind how that paid off. And I thought it was actually super interesting. I just wish it hadn't been like built up as like this big mystery all season because there's no way we could have guessed that this was the answer to it. And so it just felt like this like spinning of the wheels storyline to get to the end here. Uh, which, which, like, for what it is, like, I love Sukal's storyline. I think it ties into the ideas of trauma and PTSD really, really well. And, like, finding connection and finding uh, finding your people, finding your family, even, you know, when you've been dealing with such a trauma. So I thought that that idea worked really, really well. I just thought it didn't work well coming off of, like, how big they made the burn storyline the entire season. I was happy that we got to see Lieutenant Sahil again. Yes! Oh! Uncle! <laughs> and I also appreciate the importance of how they greeted each other. Uh, if you don't know, in Islamic culture, it is improper for a man to touch a woman who is outside of his family group. Um, and the, But the custom... So for us, for Western culture, it's proper to like shake somebody's hand. It's improper to do that in Islamic culture. His The way he held his hands was a display of the amount of respect he had for Michael. And the way she put her hand over her heart is the appropriate way to greet somebody in that culture if you're not going to touch them. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. So that being followed by their handshake made it so much more impactful. Yes, it was a big deal to see because it, it was a callback to the first time they met. But culturally speaking, the Dil Hussein being a Muslim actor, the fact that that was observed in the way that it was, I felt was really impactful as well. And I, it just, it meant a lot to see. It just means a lot to me to see other people's cultures represented respectfully, period. Yeah. I mean, that goes, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before too, like, of like, I just like that this, this show just has done such a beautiful job of not only including people of multiple identities background, but actually letting them be their authentic cultures and selves. Like from, from Michael Burnham's hair to what you just talked about, about like Muslim culture and Islamic culture and to like queer culture as well. Like they're, we're not only there, like these identities are not only there, our culture is there too. And I think that's just so cool. Yeah, it's really important. The conversation between Vance and Michael was important, not only because just the, the sheer purpose of them establishing respect for each other for the reasons that they did, 
but also it's representative of what black women have had to do in order to gain footing in an adverse society and recognizing that the status quo way about doing things isn't always the right way to go about doing things or the most effective way I should say about doing things. And I, I felt that that needed to be said. It's, it's kind of implied throughout all of discovery um, and seeing Michael through her ups and downs, all of her arcs. But the fact that they finally said it is so so very important. And I, I remember thinking, like, girl, if he offers you the chair, you better not refuse it. I swear to God, if you don't take those pips, I'm going to jump to the TV and we're going to fight. Because you better take your flowers. Take those flowers. And she did. I, I just want to say that is such a great point that I never thought about. Like, I, I knew that the show was critiquing Michael Burnham and found that interesting. Uh, and I liked that they were bringing it up. But I never thought to connect that to, like, what it's like to be uh, a black woman. And like having to work outside of the approved ways the system works just to even get heard and to get things done. I feel like it's it can be indicative for, for several other people's experiences as well. You know what I mean? Like how many people in the queer community have been told that they're not doing things the right way only to come to find out that what the hell is the right way anyhow? You know, how many people of other marginalized communities have been told the very same thing and have had to be innovative to get to their goals? I'm sorry, if if you've been a woman in the workplace you've had to work around yeah right like and anyone who that's why i stress the term marginalized peoples because the umbrella is so large the amount of people who are affected by this this type of bs as opposed to the people who actually do the affecting is so astronomically different that i to to list everybody individually would take longer than it needs to, right? So, but yes, women for sure. And then everybody else in the margins knows exactly what it's like to have to do, to carve their own path. And the fact that Vance only recognized it, he applauded her for it, and he gave her her fucking pips. He gave her the pips! I don't see anybody else in red on this bridge. Speaking of the bridge uniform, look at everybody else in these new uniforms! I hate them. Oh, no. Do you? I do! It's the boots, isn't it? No, actually, I I, I, think I mentioned this in my review on the episode, but I actually don't hate the uniforms. I, I'm never a big fan of gray as like a predominant color in a uniform, but I didn't hate them when you see them on like Starfleet HQ. Like they look gorgeous on Vance and against that like white background, but against like the bronzy color of uh, of Discovery's bridge, they kind of like kind of get washed out into the background. And I was sort of disappointed. I'm like, oh, they, the uniforms themselves look great. I just don't think they look good against that background. Mm, that's a good point. I didn't think about it that way. I'm a lot more excited about wearing those as a costume. They look a lot more comfortable. They look a lot like the Orville costumes, which I've always liked. Yeah, that is very, very true. Like, I, I am all here for comfort. I guess I'm just like, my, my aesthetically, I'm like, oh, it does. It clashes. It clashes with the carpet. And I'm not. <laughs> no, you're right. Because it, it does. Really, the, co- the color scheme is different. Disco was made in a different time. I wonder if they have any variants on that uniform. That would be neat. Uh, just like in the way that the blue and golds had skirt options, if you wanted to. I wonder if these new gray ones will as well. Either way, it's it's a change, and I'm I'm here for it. I'm definitely ready to fly, as Michael says. So, now that we've recapped Discovery Season 3, the reception, how it's been received, I think has been more controversial than the actual show itself. I've said this before on Twitter. I'll say it again here, and I'll probably say it in the future. Disco has done nothing but show us who hates sharing the spotlight. And 
it has done nothing but unify those of us who are okay with sharing the spotlight. Mm-hmm. The thing that frustrates me is, you know, if you go back and look at Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation, I think those two in particular, I love those shows. They are great shows, but they are shows that were made for sort of the eye of the majority of uh, being like, hey, we're going to try and teach you about other people and cultures in metaphorical ways. And you get to you get to sit down and you get to learn. And you aren't, isn't it going to be great? You're going to learn about marginalized groups today through safe alien metaphor which I think is is a worthwhile thing to do with the show and what made Star Trek so unique for its time. But if Star Trek wants to evolve, it needs to do what Disco has done, which is, as we've repeatedly said throughout this entire review, is like not only just include people of marginalized groups, but actually let us take charge, be actual like driving forces of the narrative and really showcase infinite diversity and infinite combinations and what that actually means. And I think disco has done that so, so beautifully and so, so wonderfully of just giving so many different groups, sometimes not as, as well as they could in some ways, but has, has generally just been trending positively in that direction. And the people who complain about it, like, I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate criticisms to have at the show. There are like, I don't like the mystery box storytelling method of the show. For example, like there are, legitimate criticisms to make of of how this show is written and done but you just see so many bad faith and disingenuous arguments that you really just go to show like people don't like not feeling like the show is made just for them anymore and it's frustrating because it means that they entirely miss the entire point of what star trek has been about from the very beginning regardless of its flaws yeah as our co-host elisa has said diversity without inclusionism is tokenism Mm -hmm. and i think i feel like this is the first star trek show that's been truly inclusive and a lot of people are finding that difficult they're finding it uncomfortable and this is an opportunity for growth for those people yeah and that being said like disco still has some work to do on on that front too like we, we talked about you know the disabled community and and how their representation may not be perfect on the show i do also have a a mild problem with not only, I mean, this show is definitely better about it now, especially now that Burnham is in the captain's chair and I'm looking forward to that in season four, but it is something to be said that like the captains of disco for the first three seasons were all played by straight white cisgender dudes who I love, you know, I love my Jason Isaacs. I love, I love my Saru's and I love my captain Pikes. I think they're all beautiful people, but I want, I'm so glad Burnham gets to take charge. And even that to be said, like, you know, Admiral Vance is the is the one in charge of all the Starfleet. So, like, you, there's still some work to be done on that front, in my opinion. But I think that the show is really, really doing the work to try and get there. Yeah, I agree. There was a moment in the finale where Vance was talking to one of his lieutenants, one of his tactical lieutenants, not Silva. I don't know if they ever named this character. She was an Asian woman. And I paused it to answer a phone call and I looked at it and I was like, holy shit, there are no white people on the screen right now. And just just that, right, I'm sure pisses off a, a distinct group of people. It's almost like, yeah, it's okay. We accept that you exist, but we don't really need to have anything focus on you. And it, my heart sings when I see people. Because that scene, that, there were no Black people in that scene. Like, that wasn't for me. But it still made me happy to see, right? It still made me happy to see that these two people from these two marginalized communities had their moment without having to share it with anybody else. So yeah, Jesse, you're absolutely right. The inclusion totally, totally matters. Even if it does miss the mark, because we can, it's my, one of my favorite things about Discovery is one of the, my biggest complaints or biggest critiques. There's uh, a danger of 
putting this messiah trope on black women and expecting them to be able to overcome insurmountable odds and have supernatural abilities to cope with trauma and save people and all of this stuff, which is true in a lot of cases, but it's not a monolith. Not every black woman is quote unquote strong or, you know, adventurous or bold or sassy or, or whatever those archetypes expect us to fulfill. And it it almost puts a little too much pressure on what people's expectations of black women to be. Um, And I only say that because Lower Decks has two powerhouse black women characters as well. So to Elisa's point, you know, diversity without representation does become tokenisms. Like these are slowly but surely becoming token angry black women or strong black woman types. And it can, it's a double-edged sword. You got to be careful with it. I need to see somebody who's meek and, and clumsy and, you know, you know, maybe a little socially awkward to kind of balance that out. Oh, oh, I do want to mention this. I know we're kind of tight on time, but Michael and Book's relationship is so important because it was a true partnership where they didn't sexualize each other. Like, yeah, we saw them make out. Yeah, we saw a bedroom scene for like a hot second, but their rapport with one another had nothing to do with physical attraction and had everything to do with their respect for getting out of hairy situations. And I I feel like that is important in relationship representation in general, but also when it comes to hetero relationships, so that this way the Stark heteros can get over themselves and realize that, hey, you know, this relationship dynamic can exist regardless of who's in the actual relationship. That type of mutual respect for the individual without sexualizing themselves or each other is seen in Colbert and Stamets. But it's the fact that it's also being seen in the hetero couple too, it just, it normalizes that type of dynamic so that we can get past the BS and move on to the next part of our evolution as a culture. Sorry, I got on my soapbox for a second there. <laughs> no, no. Hardy, I, 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 I wish we, we could show video on a podcast that you would have seen me just nodding repeatedly throughout everything you just said. So hardy, hardy agree. Uh, I just have nothing to add because you just you said it really well, but definitely agree with that. I have a controversial opinion. Ooh. I think they totally overdid the eyeliner in this season. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like you people are in the military. What are you doing with, you know, like gold and blue and all of this on your faces. Now here's my hot take. <laughs> kind of jumps off of that a, a little bit. Is actually I I like that we expand that a little bit because I have such attention. There's attention with Starfleet being a military show. Like I I get it. I get why it is. It makes a good excuse for why our characters are out exploring, doing things, and being at the forefront of the action and being part of these stories. So it, it's a good it's a good place to set it, but you know, Star Trek's mission of peace and exploration sometimes is at odds with that military focus. So I like exploding out a little bit of like how like lenient Starfleet can be in certain ways in terms of like look and, and eyeliner. And and the other thing too that kind of jumping off of that that I really love about this show in general uh, that I've seen people criticize it for, but I actually think is what makes this beautiful is like how emotional this show is like so many times throughout the show, you just see characters crying or feeling overwhelmingly happy or excited. Like this show wears its emotions on its sleeve. And I adore that. And one of the criticisms I see is like, it's a military. People shouldn't be crying all the time. Or just like, yeah, but I, I just think like, especially by the 32nd century, we would, we would be allowed 
to just show our emotions more and not have to bury them down. And I think it's important to actually showcase that. And so if it comes at the expense of like blowing up what it means to be a military based show, I am hundred <laughs> percent okay with that. Plus if you think the military people don't cry, you got another thing coming. Like they're still human beings. I'll give you emotions, but when it comes to eyeliner, we're going to have to agree to disagree. We totally are, Sarah, because I love the fact that they finally gave Oose Kun a little <laughs> bit of color on her face, yo. I also like the fact that apparently, uh, you know, for, for guys in the Mirror Universe, it's like getting goatees. And for girls, it's like wearing blue eyeshadow. <laughs> it's like, that's your, that's your thing in the Mirror Universe. Yeah. Yeah, the guy liner, too, for the Mirror Universe. Also, I don't want to um, end this episode without talking for two seconds about Linus and how adorable he is. Who apparently he he was getting some with Giorgio at one point there. <laughs> the only thing that bums me out more about Terra Phila, poor Linus didn't get any closure. Oh, poor, poor Linus. He's he's just waiting in Giorgio's quarters with some flowers going, I, I wonder where she went. <laughs> oh, my heart. You're absolutely right. I forgot about Linus. It is a travesty. I should be. It's 30 days in the brig. Easy. Um. After all that said and done about Discovery Season 3, does it uphold the ideals of Star Trek? Does it boldly go? Are we exploring infinite uh, diversity and infinite combinations? Or as we say, intersectional diversity and infinite combinations? Do, Do we see enough science? Do we have any exploration? Do we learn anything? Yeah, basically what we've always been talking about this entire episode is just like, it is incredibly inclusive. And yes, there's critiques here and there to make, but I think this show is doing the best of any Star Trek show to to show that. And I think I have some criticisms here and there with some of the ways the story is written from the Burns storyline and things like that. But I think overall, just in terms of showcasing the values of Star Trek and what Star Trek should be about, that is something I cannot fault the show for, for really pushing itself to always do so. Yeah, this season just had so much heart. It had something for everyone, I felt like. I heard a couple of people say, you know, I loved it. There were these Planet of the Week episodes that we haven't had in Discovery so far. You know, I think there was something for everyone to enjoy. Yeah. One thing that I also really enjoyed about it from a production aspect, and this is probably me just reading too much into things, but Orions have always historically been depicted as, quote unquote, beautiful people, right? I appreciated the fact that, one, they were all super tall, but also that they had this... uh, it almost looked like instead of painting everybody green, they had like a face, a green face mask that they put on everybody's faces and then just kind of fleshed out, you know, in the around the around the mouth and, and the eye area. But what I also felt like that did is give everybody, all of those actors, a uniform, statuesque, like symmetrical line to their face. So no matter what the actor looked like they could still create the illusion of this quote-unquote beautiful person if you quantify beauty in symmetry, which I think is cool because it opens up your casting options. You don't have to sit there and stress over finding an actor that can do what you need and also happens to have, you know, alarmingly symmetrical features. I also should say I like that they're inclusive behind the scenes of of Discovery too. Like you get like Hanalee Culpepper uh, as director and um, I'm blanking on the other gentleman's name. Uh, who directed a bunch of episodes, but they, they have a lot of directors of of different backgrounds and identities and people of color, both in the writing staff as well, women in the writing staff as well. And certainly that could definitely be, you know, expanded out even further. Like we we should have like a trans writer on on Star Trek, for example. But I, I do like that it's not just in front of the screen, but behind the screen as well, that that inclusiveness continues. Yeah, I would say so. 
32nd century Star Trek. Never did I think I'd see 32nd century Chap. Like, never. Shout out to the huge technology upgrades. Shout out to the costuming department in general. But those ships, man. Holy cats. When I tell you I lost my fucking mind with Voyager J and the USS Nog, I lost my fucking mind. Oh, see, mine, I lost my mind at all the Star Trek Enterprise references. Like, give me all the Temporal War references. The more, the more important Star Trek Enterprise can be, the happier I am. Because I just love, I love that ugly duckling of the Trek franchise so much. <laughs> hey, it's, it's been a long road. What can I say? Yeah, you gotta have faith of the heart. We get there, though. I love that they even acknowledge the Kelvin universe. Yeah. I mean, that was slick. Yeah, in subtle ways. In subtle ways, too. When Michael was putting the, like, rebooting the, the data core before she actually got the computer to, to boot properly, there were a couple notes in the music of Michael Giacchino's score for the start for the J.J. Abrams 2009s. And we also didn't make a reference to the USS Yelchin for Anton Yelchin as well. Yep. I, they tied up so many elements of the season, of the series, of the franchise in this season. It makes me wonder what could they possibly have in store for us for season four? Like, what? where else can we possibly go? To me, this felt like we might get canceled, so we're going to make it awesome just in case. But the fact that they're not, it's like, where are we going now? Are we USPS? Are we UFPS? United Federation of Planets Postal Service? Is that what's happening now? Yeah, let's go. Let's go see what's going on in the Delta and Gamma Quadrants. Let's check up on the Dominion and the Borg. That's what I want. Ooh, is eight four seven two still mad? <laughs> they have they still not gotten over it? <laughs> and we are going to have to answer the Borg of it all at some point. I feel like they were such a big dangling thread that I do think we need to figure out where they what had happened to them, whether in this show or in Star Trek Picard. I'm not even trying to make predictions for season four. Like I enjoyed this season so much and it didn't go anywhere I thought it would. I'm just going to enjoy being along for the ride. That's completely reasonable. I am with you on that, especially since I was a Discovery hater for the first two seasons. Like I just started watching Disco in 2020. Like I was three years, three whole years late. And had no idea what to expect. Um, and and I am I too am content to just sit here and chill. A friend and colleague has the opportunity to interview some of the showrunners. And she said, like, do you have any questions? And I was like, no. <laughs> no, just, you know, when can they keep going? When when can we get back to work? Like, what's up? <laughs> Those are my questions. I definitely think Discovery grew its beard this season. Like, it's not perfect it still has some problems still has a ways to go but i think that it definitely found its voice in a really strong way this season that's about all the time we have today jesse where can people find you on the internet uh you can mainly find me if you search jesse gender on youtube you can find all of my stuff there i do videos on uh, monday wednesday and fridays and i do video game live streams i'm going to be doing more video game live streams this year as well Um, My big videos are on Friday, so if you want to ignore everything else I do and just check me out on Fridays, those are the best days because that's when I do like a big video. And then you can help me out on Patreon. You know, if you like what I do, then help me out on Patreon. But, you know, help you guys out instead. Like, go give to Women at Warp. Don't don't help my Patreon right now. Women at Warp's Patreon. (laughs) I mean, hey, spread the wealth. Uh, Sarah, where can they find you on the internet? 
They can find me on Twitter at, at Sarah Miyoko, S-A-R-A-H, Amazon Mary, I-Y-O-K-O. And you can find my fanzine, Star Trek Quarterly, on Facebook or on the new website that Sue just made for me at StarTrekQuarterly.wordpress.com. That's wonderful. I'm geeking out because Jonathan Frakes just liked one of my tweets. Oh, hell yeah. Speaking of which, you can find me on Twitter at that Mikey Chick, uh, and Instagram at the same. It's that M-I-K-E-Y-C-H-I-C-K. Um, don't act up in my comments because I will drag you publicly and then block you or give you a shout out on the show if you follow me randomly in the middle of it. Who knows? For everybody else <laughs> and Women at Warp, thank you so much for joining us. Let's fly. To learn more about our show or to contact us, visit womenatwarp.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Women at Warp. You can also email us at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more Roddenberry podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.